This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour today. I appreciate you listening in. I'm Joel Hilliker. For generations, Disney has been practically synonymous with wholesome family entertainment, but this has been changing in recent years, and recently a leaked company-wide Zoom meeting showed Disney officials speaking openly about how they're filling Disney content with LGBT messages, transgender characters, and other forms of radicalism. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Andrew Miller about this potent example of how rapidly society is changing and how aggressive the radical left is and how vigilant we have to be to remain free of its influence. Investigators have been looking into the Freedom Convoy in Canada from earlier this year when semi-trucks from all over the country descended on Ottawa and the Prime Minister invoked the Emergencies Act to get rid of them. What's being revealed is the arguments the Canadian government used to justify their extreme measures were false. And the government's action was illegal. We'll have a conversation with Trumpet contributor Abraham Blondeau about this. As Germany seeks to modernize its military, it's looking into artificial intelligence, unmanned aerial systems and combat vehicles, even experimental prosthetics and implants to soldiers to enhance their fighting capacity. We'll talk to Trumpet writer Josue Michels about this. And finally... An archaeology story, recent chemical analysis of some ancient wine jars, brings a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah to life. We'll talk about this with our Jerusalem correspondent, Brent Noctegal. Let's start, though, with Disney's transgender agenda, which we'll hear about in this report from Andrew Miller. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has taken a principled stand against the sexual indoctrination of children in public schools. Yet the Walt Disney Company is pushing back. On March 28th, DeSantis signed the Parental Rights in Education Bill, forbidding instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. Many parents are elated at DeSantis's stand against sexual indoctrination, yet Disney has condemned the bill, calling for it to be repealed, and vowed to increase the number of homosexual and transgender characters in its programming. According to an official March 28th statement issued on the Walt Disney Company's Twitter account, Florida's HB 1557 also known as the Don't Say Gay Bill, should never have been passed and should have never been signed into law. Our goal as a company is for this law to be repealed by the legislature or struck down in the courts. And we remain committed to supporting the national and state organizations working to achieve that. We are dedicated to standing up for the rights and safety of the LGBTQ plus members of the Disney family, as well as the LGBTQ plus community in Florida and across the country. Now, after posting this statement, Disney executives organized the Reimagine Tomorrow conversation series, where the company's black, homosexual, and transgender employees suggested ways Disney could push forward a woke agenda. The featured presenter of the series, Latoya Ravenow, 
told her audience that her team was implementing a, quote, not at all secret gay agenda, unquote. And they were doing this by regularly adding queerness to Disney programming. And corporate president Carrie Burke backed up Reveno's claim by pledging to make at least 50% of Disney's on-screen characters sexual or racial minorities. Disney is also eliminating all mentions of the words ladies, gentlemen, boys, and girls at its theme parks in an effort to push forward its not-at-all-secret gay agenda. This decision may hurt Disney financially, as many conservative and Christian parents are boycotting the company. But the boycott will not likely change Disney's direction. Disney executives believe their not-at-all-secret gay agenda takes top priority above biblical moral values and even above their financial bottom line. One grandmother told the New American Magazine, I gave up on Disney years ago when they started opening up the parks for their gay pride activities while families were there. A children's theme park is no place for this. You can't promote both innocence and sex at the same time. This was a clear sign to families about where the company was headed. Now, many conservative media outlets have compared Disney's behavior to child grooming, the despicable practice of building trust and emotional connection with a child so you can manipulate, exploit, and abuse them later. And seven years ago, the left-wing media outlet CNN published a bombshell report revealing that at least 35 Disney employees had been arrested over the previous eight years for sex crimes against children. So some Disney executives might actually want to groom children, but it's more likely that Disney's not-at-all-secret gay agenda is more about the fundamental transformation of society than about executives targeting specific individuals. Now, children are born either male or female, but they don't start experiencing feelings of sexual attraction until they're between 9 and 12 years of age. And so that's why Governor DeSantis is trying to stop schools from indoctrinating children about sex until they are at least that old. But Disney wants to teach your kindergartners about homosexuality and transgenderism before they hit puberty because sexual indoctrination at this early age can influence whether a child develops a same-sex attraction. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote in 2017 that before the plague of homosexuality, there is a spirit of fornication which tears marriages and families apart. Many don't even learn the concepts of marriage and family. We would not have the homosexual problem if we were building God-plane families. Upside-down families are the primary cause of homosexuality. God's plan is to expand his own family through human families. Great nations can only be built through such great families. Family is at the core of all that is essential in this life. Homosexuals and lesbians are evidence of the total breakdown of families within our society and a sign that, as, that such nations are cursed by God and are about ready to be destroyed. Now, this statement is actually backed up by a recent Gallup poll that indicates that about 15.9% of American adults born between 1998 and 2003 identify as queer or transgender. Now, this figure compares to only 5.6% of American adults overall who identify as queer or transgender. 
And while some may challenge these polls as presenting inflated numbers, it is still evident that homosexuality and transgenderism are more common among those raised on Disney's not-at-all-secret gay agenda. The company that filmed such family-friendly films as Davy Crockett, Old Yeller, and Pollyanna now wants a large segment of its on-screen characters to be homosexual, queer, or transgender by the end of the year. This is an outright assault on the family that Governor DeSantis's parental rights and education bill cannot solve alone. Even if conservative lawmakers can stop schools from sexually indoctrinating children, they'll still be brainwashed by the entertainment industry and by the media unless their parents are extra vigilant regarding their child's screen time. The most influential philosopher of the new left movement, which has hijacked today's Democratic Party, was Herbert Marcuse, a man who viewed homosexuality as a critical weapon in the struggle to undermine the traditional family unit that prevents many people from fully embracing a socialist worldview where the government replaces the nuclear family. And so any parent who wants to protect his or her child needs to read The God Family Vision by Gerald Flurry and The Missing Dimension and Sex by Herbert W. Armstrong. This free literature gives parents the information they need to truly reimagine tomorrow. Well, thank you for that, Andrew. There have been uh, critics of Disney for decades um, and even going back to the the earlier years where I think Walt Disney was he was involved in or he he had a lot of themes of occultism in his movies and that type of thing there was there was a, a strong good versus evil and and some of his uh, characters that they used magic and and those kinds of things that aren't aren't really biblical but you mentioned those movies uh, like old yeller and you know back in the 50s and 60s where it was just very positive um you know family friendly movies that didn't even get into any of those that were just very uplifting stories when did things start to change uh and get more into what we're seeing today because this hasn't been uh just a sudden change this has been going on for a while yeah that is true i mean disney's been around for a long time i mean it was 1936 is when um disney did snow white which was his first uh feature length animated film and of course back then you'd see that he he was very into like the Grimm's fairy tales a lot of his most famous pictures are like snow white sleeping beauty cinderella stories that do have like fairy tale magic in them but uh uh, that aside, he did definitely, Walt Disney did, pride himself on his family values and, uh, and and had some challenges even as early as the 40s. That's only, I think, 1941. That's only about five years after Snow White came out where he there were some strikes and some uh, started actually looking at like Soviet like Soviet sympathizers who were getting hired in his company and, and trying to slowly introduce like communist themes in there that that Walt Disney had to to fight again even throughout his life. He died in 66 and his brother Roy uh, ran the company after that till 1984. Uh, And it really was when when Roy Disney turned the company over to Michael uh, Eisenberg uh, in 1984 that you started to see uh, 
the swift decline in the whole like old yeller Davy Crockett Pollyanna family values marketing strategy where um he started doing like more Disney sitcoms. Some of them which had some pretty raunchy uh, humor. I think he went for his first R rating. I forget at the moment what that movie was, but it was the first time Disney actually did an R rating. And so he, he definitely started to take more worldly entertainment uh, and not quite so much the pro-family values that you'd seen with Walt or Roy. Uh, it was also under Eisenberg's leadership that you, um, you really did start embracing this... Uh, this homosexual agenda fairly early. Uh, I mean, Eisenberg took over in 1984, but by the early 90s, um they, they, they were looking at getting like health care packages and other company benefits for openly homosexual employees. Uh, and, and by 2000, did their like first gay pride event. I mentioned that th- those briefly uh, in the in the standalone segment at the beginning uh, at a Disney theme park. And so that, that actually now most places do that. So maybe that doesn't seem as shocking, but by like 2000, it's not, not that long ago, only 22 years ago, but it was, uh, the homosexuality was much more controversial <laughs> even in society than it is now. So the fact that already, um, Disney was doing these events at its theme parks and, uh, Eisenberg events that were tried in 2005, but between when he took over in 1984 and 2005, you you really went all the way into <laughs> this uh, this not so secret gay agenda that the uh, they're talking about at Disney's uh, these these reimagined tomorrow series mm-hmm. now yeah and over the generations even the Disney family itself uh, obviously Walt Disney died in 1966 his uh, brother Roy died a few decades after that but I think it's his like his Disney's it's like two greats great great grand nephew it would have been his brother Roy's like great grandson uh, uh, Charlie Charlie Disney is is openly transgender uh, and, and speaking quite vocally against uh, DeSantis's parental rights in uh, an education bill yeah. uh, even though he the Disney family doesn't actually run the Disney company anymore. They they definitely still uh, are on board on board with what the with what the people who are running their company uh, want to do in this regard. It's remarkable how much the Disney brand has uh, preserved this feeling of uh, um, purity and innocence and that type of thing. With as much as that company has embraced these kinds of causes. Uh, I think they their their marketing team has has done a remarkable job of it kind of uh, you know it's been called like the Trojan mouse uh, right. basically injecting a lot of the these really radical ideas into their content in ways that that have disarmed people and they're they've they've uh, brought this on but it's interesting this uh, there have been Disney employees that they they sent out a, an open letter. Uh, basically saying that they they feel like they um, 
they don't feel welcome in this company anymore. They they sent this to to the management, and they said uh, the Walt Disney Company has come to be in, an increasingly uncomfortable place to work for those of us whose political and religious views are not explicitly progressive. We watch quietly as our beliefs come under attack from our own employer, and we frequently see those who share our opinions condemned as villains by our own leadership. They. The packaging is that they're all about inclusivity and so on. And here you have people who I would think that there were a lot of people who joined that company, you know, wanting to embrace that kind of pro-family message that are being attacked uh, for this. It's interesting just to see the the video of these these uh, company officials uh, just speaking so brazenly about the most radical ideas that. Uh, that you can even imagine, and there's nothing, uh, right. you know, there's nothing inclusive about that in terms of those who would have any any uh, disagreement or any discomfort about that. Yeah, because I mean, Disney is already pretty far uh, <laughs> far left in this whole anti-family agenda, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if you see them. Uh, turn much harder to than that in the the months ahead like you said as a lot of the the people who may have joined due to nostalgic feelings from their childhood about a pro uh, family agenda actually leave the company or are forced out because even in the past couple years i mean i mentioned they've been doing these homosexual pride events at their theme parks for the past two decades but even in the past couple years they've turned uh, much more militant in this I, th- I think one example i read about is they about two years ago they did a reboot of the of the like the child's uh cartoon series ducktales uh and, and one thing they did in that that a lot of people wouldn't <laughs> pick up on if you unless you were watching close or or, or you'd read about it is that one of the characters there who um had like lesbian parents but they weren't like they didn't feature in any of the plots it's kind of like they're they've got a part like a party and they're just kind of in the background you can see them if you're kind of uh, eagle-eyed but it was definitely an attempt at like subliminal messaging to show children that this is normal by having like homosexual parents in these cartoon series kind of in the background to where you like I said if your parents are just walking through the <laughs> walking through the living room seeing what their kids are watching they might not they might not pick up on anything mm-hmm. uh, unless you're unless you're really really being attentive at what type of things are in the background but now like after this reimagined tomorrow series they've been pretty militant that they want like 50 percent of their characters to be um either racial or or sexual minorities or or adding queerness to their program so they're really talking about like this is going to get much more um in your face uh yeah yeah it's uh it's quite distressing and i you you just don't see a whole lot of um, pushback against this this type of thing, like you said, that there are some people that say we're, we're boycotting Disney, but on the whole, it seems like uh, society is is pretty willing to uh, to go along with something like this. I I do think that Disney coming out as brazenly as they are here is going to cost them some uh, some customers, uh, and it does seem too. Ron DeSantis seems very willing to uh, to to stand up. To uh, the company, they're they're talking about having some legal battles over even Disney's legal status within Florida. Um, but you you uh, the 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 juggernaut that is Disney and just right. society in general moving in this direction is very very difficult to uh, 
to make any lasting dent against. We've been talking with trumpet writer Andrew Miller about Disney's transgender agenda. He's written an article about this. Disney vows to indoctrinate five-year-olds with harmful transgender ideology. You can check that out at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Remember the Freedom Convoy in Canada? Semi-trucks from all over the country descending on the capital in Ottawa and then the Prime Minister invoking the Emergencies Act to get rid of them? Well, the arguments that the Canadian government used to justify their extreme measures have been proven false, making the government's action illegal. To talk about this, we have from our office in Canada, trumpet contributor and resident Canadian, Abraham Blondeau. Hello, Abraham. Hello. Can you remind us of what happened there and then the unprecedented steps the government took to deal with it? Sure. Yeah. So as the the Freedom Convoy descended on Ottawa and uh, especially around the parliamentary precinct, um, it basically shut down traffic and, and uh, there were hundreds of trucks and, and thousands of people there. Um, on February 14th, in response to that, the uh, federal government, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, invoked the Emergencies Act, uh, which basically, um, it's an emergency statute that gives the government wartime powers to deal with a national emergency. So the actual statute, um, there's four different cases you can use it. Um, all of them deal with a threat to national sovereignty or uh, or it's an existential threat against the country. Um, so they use a public order emergency. And in order to, they framed it during the announcement that the Freedom Convoy protesters were a threat to national security. They were a threat to Canadian democracy uh, because they were uh, threatening to overthrow the government. So that was the message coming out from the media and uh, from Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, so when they invoked the, the act, some of the, the powers that they gave uh, were they, they froze people's bank account without a warrant. So over 200 bank accounts were frozen. Uh, that's about $8 million were frozen across Canada uh, that we know of. Um, they also could arrest people without a warrant. Um, there was no judicial oversight of anything they did. Um, so it gave the the police the power just to act without asking or getting approval beforehand. Um, and I think the the most significant part of it was it, it just gave them um, huge discretion in who they targeted. Um, and part of the, the ramifications we're seeing is even though um, the emergency is over, quote unquote, they rescinded the act. Um, we're still seeing arrests to this day of people who were involved. Some bank accounts are still frozen. Um, and so all this, these extreme measures that, that uh, go against our civil liberties, that go against the basic rule of law, uh, all this was framed around the idea that the protesters in Ottawa were a threat to security. They were a threat to Canada as a nation. Uh, but as you mentioned, all of that is being proven false. Yeah, so tell us about the information that is coming out now that is looking back on what the Canadian government did and and saying this was illegal. 
Sure. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of this information has come out through uh, parliamentary committees as they bring in witnesses, they bring in firsthand uh, firsthand accounts to try to figure out what happened. Um, uh, particularly was with the uh, financial side of things. So that was probably the the most egregious violation of of civil liberties was the government freezing bank accounts and even um, freezing the um, the money in the the crowdfunding platforms on GoFundMe and Give Send Go, which each raised millions of dollars uh, to support the convoy. Um, so. So Both what, the what was happening at the time that that unit. was uh, at the time that that was taking place? Uh, you mentioned that the media was uh, was really painting everything that was happening there as if it was a terrorism that that it was a threat to uh, an existential threat to Canadian democracy and so on. So they were highlighting all of the most egregious acts that they could find. They were manufacturing acts in some cases when it came to the funding. There was this narrative, basically, that uh, that they were funding illegal activity, and that there was even foreign funding that was coming in that was uh, they they said w- was undermining Canada's democracy. The reality is quite different. Yeah, absolutely. They, I think the the justice minister said there were Trump supporters funding <laughs> the convoy, uh, but the both Give Send Go and GoFundMe. In uh, testimony, they said that um, uh, Give Send Go said 60% of donors were from Canada. Uh, GoFundMe said 88% were from Canada. And there weren't any massive do- donations from Americans or any foreigners. All the biggest donations were from Canadians. And uh, both of the go- federal government's own um, financial crime watchdogs, FinTrack and the RCMP, they both testified that the protesters posed no threat to, sec- to national security, that they were not financing terrorism or an insurrection, and everything was legally and above board. Uh, so the federal government's own agencies undermined the, the narrative that the Trudeau government was putting out there. And as, as you mentioned, um, all the different um, reports that were coming out, um, there were some about Russians supporting the convoy Putin was behind it. Um, there were reports that the truckers were ra- uh, rapists, that they committed arson, that they had guns. Um, every single one of these accusations have been proven false, um, either through the Ottawa police force or um, and no evidence has come up uh, proving any of these these uh, accusations that were used to uh, justify that they were a threat, that they were violent that they were going to do some kind of January 6th type insurrection. That's what the narrative was mm-hmm. uh, pushing for. Uh, but in the end, they, the government has produced zero evidence to support any of those um, claims that they've made. So the conclusion that they're drawing from this is, were the, if those things were not what the government claimed, that the pretext that the government used to justify the uh, Emergency Powers Act was false, and therefore the fact that the government invoked that act was illegal. Yeah, exactly. There's, um, since the the statute does have thresholds that are supposed to be met, so that, that the government have to prove that are there, so they can um, 
invoke the the emergency powers. But as you said, all of that's been there's zero proof, zero evidence, um, and so that makes the use of this act illegal because they did not meet those thresholds. And even the use of the act was illegal. Uh, what I mean by that is um, the only judge to rule on the, the convoy um, said that the protesters had a legal right to be there and that it was not a blockade or an occupation, but they had the legal right to be in Ottawa. Uh, so the only judge who ever ruled on this said it was legal. But as soon as the Emergency Act was invoked, um, Trudeau declared it an illegal protest. Mm-hmm. So the the Emergencies Act says you can't use these powers against a legal protest. Um, so there's there's no evidence in a in a, from any lawyers or judges that, that have been testifying and coming out in the media uh, that Trudeau relied upon to make these claims or to say it was illegal. He just declared it illegal using his own authority, his own message. There was nothing backing that up. So not only does this expose the government for uh, having basically targeted its political enemies uh, using uh, dictatorial powers, it also exposes the media's complicity in this because they were the ones that were promoting this. You saw all kinds of reporters out there in the streets that were just talking about this nightmare because of horns honking, and uh, they were talking about seeing Nazi flags and Confederate flags and uh, basically drudging up every negative association that they possibly could with this convoy, it, it certainly does expose the media as well. Now the now that we're here and this testimony is emerging that's saying that this was all false, what happens next? How is are, are these officials to be held to account? Yeah, that's, that's the $100 million question um, because this is unprecedented. We've never had a government um, fail to justify this kind of power before. Um, so uh, there are many uh, legal challenges to the Emergencies Act that are going before the Supreme Court later this year. So um, we could see the Supreme Court make a, a ruling on that. But that still comes to the question, what happens to the prime minister? What happens to the people who knowingly lied about this and, and then abused her power. Um, and Canada's no stranger to scandals in the past, but there's never been something on this scale before where uh, most of the, the scandals have been personal ethics and, and those sort of things, people stealing money, but nothing to the effect where you undermine democracy and the rule of law. You fundamentally change Canada for for nine days just to... Uh, to um, crack down on political dissent. Um, so it will be interesting to see if uh, what can be done um, because since this time, Trudeau's actually gotten more power since this this happened. Um, he's actually entered into a coalition they call a confidence and supply agreement with the NDP who are the, the Communist Party in Canada, Socialist Party. And so he's guaranteed to to survive any no confidence vote until 2025, when Parliament will dissolve anyway for an election. So coming out of this, Trudeau um, is insulated from from a no confidence or, or anything like that. So no one's really sure how 
he will be held accountable now that he's insulated himself with this agreement. Uh, so that will be the interesting um, thing to see in the next few months. Just if people, if Canadian people will finally act or or, or something else will happen where uh, they express their frustration at this, at these revelations. But uh, then again, like you mentioned, the media are completely complicit uh, and Trudeau's giving them uh, millions of dollars more funding in the in the last budget to because they did such a good job with the freedom convoy coverage mm. that that's what he actually said um so it, this narrative is going to keep going um so we'll we'll have to see in the next few months what if anything happens with that any americans watching what's happening next door up in canada have to uh have a certain sense of deja vu after the uh, january 6th insurrection, quote-unquote, and the way that the government has prosecuted those who had any association with it whatsoever, you definitely see just how determined these officials are to go after their enemies and abuse power in whatever way they feel is necessary to do so. Um, as you said, it will be interesting to watch how this plays out in Canada because it is a, it, it really is the same story uh, among these elites uh, tr just trying to, uh, to use their power, to hold on to power, to cling to power any way that they can. Uh, we've been talking with uh, trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau about Canada's Freedom Convoy and the government's illegal response to it. He's written an article about this. It's called The Biggest Scandal in Canadian History. You can find that on thetrumpet.com. And he goes into some of the prophecies about just the infiltration of communism within the modern nations of Israel that are really behind what we see happening up there in Canada. Go check out his article. Thanks so much for your time, Abraham. Thanks for having me on the show. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Germany is rethinking the way wars are fought and looking into a variety of technologies that promise to revolutionize the battlefield. To talk about this, we have trumpet writer Josue Michels. Hello, Josue. Hello, Mr. Erika. So uh, tell us about the kinds of innovations that Germany is contemplating here. Yes, so there are quite a few technologies that are believed to revolutionize industry, but also the military. The last 150 years, we have seen technological revolutions that really enabled the rise of Britain and America. But some believe the next technological revolution may be bigger. They talk about blockchain that could revolutionize the banking system, for example. They talk about artificial intelligence that could reduce the amount of workers in a company. They talk about buzzwords like the Internet of Things, connecting, for example, household devices with the Internet. They talk about genetic engineering, quantum computing, and big data. So those are lots of buzzwords and many write about that. But those aspects all have an implication for the military that really could revolutionize the way wars are fought. Yeah, so so tell us about the, the military dimension of this. You, you wrote an article about this uh, Gutenberg, Atos, and modern blitzkrieg warfare. Uh, tell us about the innovations on the battlefield that they're contemplating. Yes, that's right. So you can think about self-driving cars, for example, 
But all those things have implications for the military, like you can think about unmanned tanks. You don't have to think much about them because they already exist, so you can look at images of self-driving cars, but you can also look at images of self-driving tanks. And such a self-driving tank could make decisions of who to kill, for example according to the programs a human being programs them with. But it goes far beyond just a self-driving tank. It goes about they talk about whole swarms of drones connected through artificial intelligence that could evaporate aircraft carriers that could evaporate entire cities. You could exa for example think about unmanned aircraft together with manned aircraft. So swarms of drones together with for example a nuclear armed fighter jet. The swarms of drones go first overburdening the air defense system The fighter jet with nuclear bombs comes afterwards, mm. devastating the city. So uh, tell us about the, the company that has uh, kind of stood out as a, a, a real innovator in these respects. Yes, there are quite a few, like Airbus is one of the biggest companies, but Airbus also cooperates with another company on cybersecurity and things like that. That's a company called Atos. It's a French company. The first time... I heard about it was when a friend told me that Atos was cooperating with Israel's Rafael. Now Israel is very advanced, one of the most advanced countries when it comes to the Internet of Things, the revolution in technology, artificial intelligence, also in the met also on the battlefield in the military. At the time they just signed an agreement on behalf of the German military, so the German military asked the French company Atos and Israel's Raphael to work on a so-called class battlefield. Now, we usually think about military planning, you take out a map and you try to f find out how to win that battle. But now we have all those drones and we have all the new technologies. So you're having drones connected through artificial intelligence and they are able to make decisions. They can locate targets and they can eliminate them through the communication they have between each other. For example, one drone could fly ahead, might get destroyed, next drone goes right after and eliminates the target that the drone was shot off in the first place. And Atos claims to have 40 years of experience in electronic warfare. They talk about in one of the papers that I read about a soldier of the future. He will be a digital soldier, they said. And I have seen them quite a lot in cooperation with the German army where they seek to digitalize the German armed forces. So I think they are a company to watch in that field. There's uh, one man that we've watched closely over the years who's very interested in the technology that you're describing and has some connections to this company, Atos. Uh, tell us about him. Yes, we have watched Karl Theodor zu Gutenberg for a long time and for years I have been watching him, every speech I could find, every article he has written. And the topic he most talks about is this kind of technology. In 2015, for example, he talked about the European Union needing to take the lead in artificial intelligence, robotics and blockchain. Now that was in 2015, not many people cared about it at that time, but now we see more and more people are talking about it. So it really could be a revolution in that field. In the last two years, he has attended a meeting in Austria with Atos and some famous politicians from Austria that attended that meeting as well. But he was one of the leading characters 
characters at that meeting. So he's definitely interested and I have a quote here from him from 2019 where he said to an interview with Depressor, he said, a targeted hacker attack on infrastructure is of economic relevance. He also said that nations are no longer defended with tanks, bombs are no longer necessary to interrupt a water supply. This is reality today and can trigger new acts of war. So he was talking in the context of cyber attacks that could revolutionize warfare, but he has also talked about other technologies that really could make a big difference. So Gutenberg is uh, really uh, an interesting man, and he is interested in a lot of uh, pretty cutting-edge technology. He's definitely into uh, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, those types of uh, technologies. Uh, the fact that he's this interested in uh, military advancements of the type that you're describing is of particular interest given his his uh, background as a former defense minister of Germany uh, and what we view as the potential for him to actually kind of run the whole show. Yes, we have quite a few Bible prophecies that Mr. Fluey has highlighted in that context. Our trumpet editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fluey, it, for example, talks about a prophecy in Daniel 8, where it says that the coming strongmen of Europe will understand dark sentences. In the same context, it talks about military advances, new forms of blitzkrieg warfare, essentially, where Europe will decimate other nations. And there are prophecies in Revelation 13, verse 5, for example, or verse 4, where it talks about how this beast of Revelation which Herbert W. Armstrong explains in his book, Who of What is the Prophetic Beast, is a European empire. This beast will rise and people will ask, who is able to make war with him? So this talks about a certain element of surprise. Other nations around the world will be looking at Europe and see like, where did it get this military power from? So there will be an element of surprise that could be because of technological advances. Revelation 9 talks about a 200 million man army sent from Asian nations that unite to stop that military power. Europe could not have a 200 million man army. There's no way it could muster that. But it appears that Asia needs to unite because Europe has a cutting edge in the technolo technological field. And Revelation 9 for 7 to 9 talks about swarms of locusts and the impression is that it's military aircraft. Hmm. And interestingly, very interestingly, many describe the new forms of military warfare as swarms of drones, and they compare them with swarms of insects. Hmm. Well, that is very interesting. We, uh, we've been talking with uh, trumpet writer Josue Michels about Germany's technological military advancements. He's written an article about this, Gutenberg... Atos and Modern Blitzkrieg Warfare. You can find that at thetrumpet.com. We'll link to that in the show notes as well as Herbert W. Armstrong's booklet, Who or What is the Prophetic Beast? We really do appreciate you keeping your eye on these developments in Germany and what's happening militarily in that country is all the more interesting in light of the Ukraine war and Germany's pledges to increase its military spending. Where that money goes and how it's used is definitely of supreme interest to us given the prophecies of the Bible. Thank you very much for your time, Josue. Thanks for having me again. 
This is Trumpet Hour. Biblical archaeology continues to uncover more evidence of the Bible's veracity all the time. A recent chemical analysis of some ancient wine jars brings a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah to life. To talk about this, we have from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hello, Brent. Hello. So tell us what uh, what was found, when it was found, where it was found, and, and then what this uh, analysis uh, revealed recently. Yeah, this is... Quite an amazing discovery, and I think it's it's it shows just how far biblical archaeology has come as a science, or archaeology in general, where you have this mixture of archaeology of digging in the dirt, and then the work that can be done in the lab to uncover more information uh, from really some mundane artifacts. And in this case, we're talking about uh, some pottery vessels collapsed or broken pottery vessels that were involved in, that were destroyed during the famous Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, uh, dated to 586, 585 BCE in this era. And what they they discovered, as far as this report goes, is that these vessels, when they were destroyed, actually contained wine. Uh, We, and these vessels themselves, it's been hard to know exactly what was in them. Uh, we have found this style of storage vessel before, and it's been assumed that it was wine or oil or grain or something like that. These these are vessels that can hold you know, almost up to 20 gallons, so they're quite large. Um, but there was a residue analysis that took place at Tel Aviv University, and they found that they did in fact hold wine. Uh, one or two of them actually held olive oil before wine, and so that was probably their previous use. And then what they also found, what they were very surprised with, was they found remnants of vanilla, the plant vanilla, uh, where we get the flavor vanillin or the leftover of that. Um, And so they believe that this wine that was being drunk and stored right as Jerusalem was being besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and then destroyed was actually flavored, flavored with vanilla, uh, which speaks to the, the amazing uh, like the exotic nature of of the wine there and the ability of the, the Jerusalemites at this time to import such an expensive spice. This is the second most expensive spice in the world at this time. Uh, nobody really thought that it would have made its way to Jerusalem, um, but it looks like vanilla did, perhaps through the, the spice trade that, that first of all came from either India or Africa and then found its way to kind of Southern Arabia and then worked its way up to Jerusalem. The Bible, of course, is full of, of elements of tr- this trade that came up from Southern Arabia to Jerusalem. And so that's the, the long and short of this discovery itself. And I think what it shows is that we could talk a bit more about the context of in the book of Jeremiah, but it just shows how much information now can be garnered from anything in the dirt uh, these days um, down to what was contained in these vessels and even all the different things that might have been contained in them uh, in a bygone era. That is an extraordinary level of detail that uh, that is able to be uh, revealed through uh, modern forms of uh, an analyzing these artifacts as you said it shows just how far advanced the uh, the realm of archaeology and biblical archaeology has has come so uh, we're talking about the period of Jeremiah this is obviously well recorded in 
in the Bible, uh, what was going on and how God sent Jeremiah specifically to correct the people of Judah at that time for some of the practices that were going on. Can you just help us to understand the context of this discovery? I think this is very important for people and it's easy to get lost in the details when you're talking about ancient history and the science of archaeology and this wall and that pottery vessel. And and yet what we find in Jerusalem from this time period is absolutely phenomenal. So we're talking about the time period of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet who worked for about uh, 40 years, um, almost 40 years up to the, the destruction of Jerusalem. He was just a young man when he started his prophetic message and the, uh, starting in the reign of King Josiah. And then he continued to warn uh, the nation to repent, uh, else they would go into captivity. And towards the end of his, his, his message to, to, the, to the Jews at the time, he said that they would go into captivity and they should um, really, you know, let the Babylonians in a way, they sh- the Babylonians were going to conquer and they were going to captivity. But after 70 years, they would come back. And it was a very hopeful message, contrary to what many people think of Jeremiah being a messenger of doom. Um, and so you see throughout the book, the hope, but then also prophecies of what would happen to those very stubborn remnants of society that refused to listen to God. And so in terms of the biblical picture that is presented through archaeology, archaeology best reveals destructions because that is the period in which you have a massive collapse, maybe a building is destroyed, and then you have life as it existed at the destruction that is preserved. And so in terms of the biblical period of Jerusalem, nothing can highlight that from archaeology like the period of Jeremiah, because that's when the city was destroyed. And so in terms of the archaeological remains, we have pottery vessels, we have charred wood, we have, you know, the the burnt remnants of the destruction. We also have biblical figures that are coming to life out of this same strata of soil as well, whether it's, you know, uh, in this excavation where these vessels were found, we had a seal impression, which is basically the pers- personal signature of an ancient Judean official that's mentioned in the Bible. His name is Nathan Malek, uh, servant of the king. He's mentioned as, as somebody during the period Period of King Josiah. They found a seal impression in the same room that they found these storage vessels containing containing the wine of this individual. So really just showing that the Bible from this period is extremely accurate in its history. Then just about, I don't know, about a hundred meters from the location of that seal impression, we were part of excavations back in 2007 and 8, which revealed another biblical character from the book of Jeremiah, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, one of four princes that sentenced Jeremiah, wanted to sentence him to death, but instead got thrown in a pit. Um, and two of those princes have actually been discovered. And so there, and then you can talk about another t- 10 meters away from where that one was discovered, another biblical figure from Jeremiah, Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, who was a scribe in the court of King Jehoiakim, one of these last four kings of, of Judah. And so we find all of those seal impressions related to Jeremiah's time because that's when the destruction took place of Jerusalem really sealing this layer for archaeologists to come through and recreate that snapshot of history. And these broken wine vessels are part of that same, uh, same assemblage, same, same uh, archaeological context. So when we uh, found those, uh, those bulla 
of Jeremiah's captors. That was something that uh, our editor-in-chief was was really uh, captivated by. Uh, we were able to display those two bulla in the Armstrong Auditorium uh, in a, a quite an extensive uh, exhibit here with several dozen other artifacts from that time. But what uh, Gerald Fleury has talked about is he feels like this the uncovering of this particular episode in Judean history is is important because of the warning that it sends. Here you you look back at that history and the people that you're describing who were involved and the warnings that Jeremiah was giving at the time that this was taking place, uh, and you see those prophecies were accurate. Those warnings were absolutely God. God followed through on those. We're in a similar period right now where. You have the these same prophetic warnings about what's happening in our modern nations, uh, and in some ways, th- this archaeological evidence that we're finding and the story that it tells really has more relevance than it has ever had before. It's not a coincidence, in other words, that it's right now that these discoveries are coming to light. Yeah, you're touching on something that I think is phenomenal and one of the very exciting things in archaeology. As a science, it's been around 150 years, really, 200 years. And then the degree of precision, as I said, has increased exponentially in the past 20 years to the point that you can discover these seal impressions where before there was really no chance um, going back 50 years. Hardly any of them were found. And so very rarely. And so you are finding that the biblical history matches with the archaeology down to these seemingly insignificant figures in the book of Jeremiah. And then if you read, as Mr. Flurry's mentioned, you know, chapter 30 of Jeremiah, you know it says it's for the time for the latter days. There's there's a dual, there's a dual nature to the prophecy of Jeremiah and to the nations of Israel. And so when you do see the the fact that these Jeremiah's prophecy the first time around it, it did take place. The nation refused to repent, um, and it did go into captivity, and Jerusalem was destroyed. And the archaeological picture really does support that, and it should be taken as a, as a warning um, to, to all of us to recognize you know, the prophetic message that's going out today and to take, take personal um, correction from that, as Jeremiah did talk to people about, and and some did, and 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 some did respond, but the the broad majority of the city itself uh, did not respond. There was one, there is one prophecy that's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter thirteen, which does take specific mention to these wine vessels that. Uh, all these vessels that would be filled with wine. Perhaps I could quote that. It says this, Moreover, you shall speak unto them this word. So God is telling Jeremiah to say this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, speak unto them this, Every bottle or vessel is filled with wine. And when they shall say unto you, Do we not know that every bottle is filled with wine? Yes, we know this, Jeremiah. Then how do you respond, Jeremiah? You say this, Then you shall say unto them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests and the prophets and the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness, and I'll dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together. And so it really did these wine vessels anciently, when they were full, were meant to be a warning saying, those wine vessels, they are going to be smashed unless you repent. And indeed, we find those those smashed vessels in this destruction layer of 586. There's a picture in uh, on our website, armstronginstitute.org, 
with all of these pottery shards spread out over tables. They're trying to reconstruct these vessels painstakingly piece by piece. And uh, that really does bring that, that prophecy to vivid, uh, a vivid picture of what God was, uh, was prophesying there. Uh, we've been talking with our Jerusalem correspondent, Brent Noctegal, about some wine jars in Jerusalem from the period of the prophet Jeremiah, right at the time of the fall of the kingdom of Judah. He recorded a podcast about this, uh, the analysis of these wine jars recently. That appears there at armstronginstitute.org. There's also an article there about it uh, by Chris Eames. Uh, you can go check those out. We'll link to those in the show notes. Is there anything else that you would... Uh, direct people to to uh, to better understand just the prophetic significance of these discoveries, Brent. I think people should go ahead and, and read the just Mr. Flurry's book, Jeremiah and the Greatest Vision in the Bible, because it does give both uh, facets to Jeremiah's warning message, both the hope and the the dire warning for the people uh, today. All right, thanks so much for your time today. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Andrew Miller, Abraham Blondeau, Josue Michels, and Brent Noctegal. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from George Washington. Happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.